The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and uh, join me in the book of John, chapter 14. The book of John, chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse, the final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately en route to the cross. We found our way into the end of John chapter 14, and today we'll study again the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus cyclically goes through in this passage. Over and over, he keeps coming back to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, follow along as I read verses 25 and 26. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. There are really very few theological issues that are more confusing, few more hot topics than the doctrine of pneumatology. Now, the doctrine of pneumatology is the big fancy word for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who the Spirit is and what he does may be the central debate in our chapter of church history. I think in a hundred years when they begin saying, what did the church in our generation really wrestle with and talk through? They're going to look at extremes and polarized arguments and debates about the ministry and the nature and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, much of this confusion can be laid at the feet of the radical charismatic movement. Not all charismatic, but some charismatics who um, consider the Holy Spirit more of a force, a, a power, an energy, a a magic charm, a source that you plug into. Some of the confusion actually goes all the way back to the translation of the Greek word pneuma in the King James Bible. Because strangely and oddly enough, when they translated the King James Bible, they didn't translate the word Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit, but they called him the Holy Ghost. And that has led all sorts of speculations about the Holy Ghost. I remember one time when I was in high school hearing a college student who was teaching in a Sunday school class that uh, I was uh, attending, and none of our college students would ever do this, by the way. But he went on and on that the Holy Ghost is a ghost because he's the ghost of Jesus. And that's elaborate scheme. And I remember thinking, that sounds weird. He's not the ghost of Jesus. Is he really a ghost? The Greek word pneuma actually means spirit, but it really has its etymology, its roots in the idea of wind, the moving of air, blowing. The idea is it's something that you can see the effects of, but you can't see the cause of. Jesus uses the analogy of the word pneuma, of the word spirit, in John chapter 3, and actually says that, like the spirit. You don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. You can see its effects, 
but you can't always see its source. And that's certainly the case with the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. We can see, we can sense, we can feel, we can experience his effects. But you can't see him as a body. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is of chief concern to Jesus in this last conversation with his disciples. He wants them to be cared for. He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to be counseled. He doesn't want them to be alone. And so on the night before his crucifixion, only moments at this point before they leave the room and begin walking down the Kidron Valley toward the garden where he would pray, he turns his attention again to the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over, the Lord has and is going to continue in this passage to discuss the coming ministry of the Spirit of God. And that's important to him because selflessly and extremely selflessly facing his sufferings, of which he knew every detail, of which he had prophesied with great specificity, he sets his affections away from his own suffering and continues to give them the comfort that they need, assuring them them that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to leave them a comforter or a helper. But here's the context that we're looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Jesus wants them to know that he is the source and the arbitrator, the revealer, and the interpreter of divine revelation. Jesus wants the men to know that they will be divinely aided in the coming days and weeks and months and years until they die in their knowledge, understanding, and remembrance of the truth. He's about to leave these men in a hostile world, but he doesn't want to leave them alone. He's going to give them the Spirit of God, but he's also going to give them the remembrance of God, which will ultimately be canonized and put into the Bible, the the Word of God. Now, this is a critical portion of Scripture for us in, in informing our theological epistemology. That's a big word for saying, how do we know what we know about God? Or... How and why can we and why should we believe this book, this Bible? I'm sure if you've been a Christian for very long, you've ended up having some debate or some conversation with someone about the validity and the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? And let me just, let me just encourage you and give you a, a chance to have a deep breath and a sigh. You definitely engage in circular reasoning, and, and that's Okay. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to say, I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? Because it's the Word of God. How do you know it's the Word of God? Because it tells me it's the Word of God. Well, you can't use the source to prove the source. You say, well, actually, yes, I can. But that's circular reasoning. You say, yes, it is. Every reasoning, listen, every reasoning, philosophy 101, every single reasoning in the history of the world is by necessity circular reasoning. You have to use the definition and the presuppositions of some things before you can prove the presuppositions of other things. Everything is built on the idea of understanding itself. That's a lot of fancy words just to say, I'm okay with us saying the Bible proves the Bible. We don't need to go to all of the proofs that people have offered over over the course of the years for the existence of God and the proofs of the Bible. Those are helpful for a Christian to be encouraged. But ultimately, the Bible tells us that God opens our eyes, takes the scales of sinfulness off of them, gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. 
what he's revealed and we accept it as the very word of God. And those who don't have not had that work of the Holy Spirit that's turned on like a switch in their minds. Last week, I did a little researching uh, on the internet, just looking at the websites of some area churches, and uh, had some, some fun looking at what people were doing. I, I'll admit it, I was trying to steal a lot of ideas. What are they doing this well, and what can we, let's pick the flowers and leave the weeds, you know, chew the meat, spit off the bones, whatever illustration you want to use, I was trying to cherry pick. So um, uh, when I did that, I came across uh, a church that had some video sermons, and I said, I want to see what the video sermon is. And I clicked on it, and I watched it, and I couldn't believe it, so I called Bob in to, to verify if this is actually what I was hearing. One of those video recordings was only from two weeks ago, and it is a church that is very near ours, within a few, within a few miles. It might surprise you to hear that this sermon was critical of churches like Mission Road Bible Church. Very critical. Here are some exact quotes that I wrote down in, as I watched this sermon. Quote, Who can claim to be right when speaking of God? End quote. Who in the world can claim to be right when speaking of God? Another quote. Certainty about theology is wrong. Here's another quote. When we talk about God, it's less important to be right. The only thing that matters is to be honest. And then over and over, this preacher continued to say, who can speak in commanding tone when speaking about God? How does that land with you? How does that feel? We are those who believe that God has spoken. He's spoken very clearly. And God did not have a speech impediment. He didn't have any issues commanding us in commanding tone. Why do we, why do we think with theological precision? Should we think with theological precision? Why do we believe in the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture? That's another big word that simply means clear. Could, don't you think the theologians could actually fix these words and just say the clarity of Scripture instead of saying perspicuity? But they talk about the perspicuity of Scripture. All of those questions and even the accusation that this pastor was making of churches like ours, which have the audacity to believe that we're right about what the Bible says because the Bible actually reveals what it says and is very clear about that, it's not an issue of arrogance. It's an issue of understanding. Why is that important? Where does that all come together? It all comes together in the two verses we're looking at this morning. Again, this is the upper room discourse. Things are about to move very fast. If you look at the very end of the chapter, Jesus says in verse 31, at the end of the verse, Get up, let us go from here. Most scholars conjecture that the, the language uh, of the, of the uh, New Testament, the Greek language here, beginning in verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, has the idea of while, while I've been here, which means we're about to go somewhere. Most conjecture that he's probably standing up. They're about to take that walk down off the Temple Mount in the upper room on the 
the, the, the southwestern um, side of Jerusalem. They're going to walk through the streets, down over the lip of the Temple Mount, down in the Kidron Valley, over into the grove of olive trees where Jesus liked to go to pray. This is the last face-to-face he's really about to have with the disciples. The rest of this discourse, most agree, is probably happening as they're walking down through the valley, which would make sense when he gets into chapter 15 and says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, walking through a grove of vine and branches. Same conversation that's going to be held on the run. Why is he going to get up and go pretty soon? Because he has an appointment with Judas. And he doesn't want to miss that appointment. There's something about the change here. He says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. He seems to be kind of lingering in the room here. It has a sound of wistful longing and the enjoyment of the disciples' company. This is the last group hug they're about to have. I've been continually over and over struck throughout this passage by Jesus' selfless care of the disciples in the face of his impending suffering about which he knows full well. But the ultimate expression of his care and promise is to make sure that they know that the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be sent and left with them. So we're going to dive into looking at the Holy Spirit here in verse 26. Four attributes of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Four attributes of the Holy Spirit's ministry here in verse 26. Verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. And then he says, But, but the helper. Now you're going to get someone new. You have had me. Now the Spirit of God is going to be given. The first attribute of the Holy Spirit's ministry is there in the beginning of verse 26. He is the one who provides divine help. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides divine help. He says in the beginning phrase, but the helper, but the helper. This is the second mention of the Holy Spirit as the helper. Remember, the Greek word used here is paraclete. It has a wide range of meanings. Helper, encourager, admonisher, confronter, comforter. It just means someone who is generally encouraging you, beside you to do what's right and to keep you going. Back in verses 16 to 18, we learned that the Father would send another helper. This is significant. Look back up at 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That's speaking of the Holy Spirit. That is the spirit of, this is significant, truth. And the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit is to be a paraclete, a comforter. That makes sense with what they're experiencing right then, doesn't it? I'm going to send you, he is another helper. He's already been their helper. He's already been their keeper. He's already been their comfort. He's already been their counsel. But now here comes another. The Spirit is to be a comforter, advocate, helper, supporter, in a similar way that Jesus had been. That's why the word another is used. I'm going to send another. The Father will send another Paraclete, which indicates that Jesus had been this kind of encourager and helper previously. But here we find out that the Spirit is sent, in verse 26, in Jesus' name. Even though the Father is said to be the sender in verse 16. All throughout this passage, I feel like in the last 
four weeks, we've, we've gotten confusing clarity about the Trinity. In other words, there's so much going back and forth. I mean, who, who really is in charge of sending the Spirit? Is the Father or the Son? Well, the solidarity, togetherness, and overlapping work of all three members of the Trinity cannot be over-recognized or over-emphasized here. It just doesn't seem to be a problem for Jesus to talk about the Father sending, the Son sending, in my name, in the Father's name. I'll be with you. The Father will be with you. We'll make our abode with you. The Father and me, we're coming. The Spirit's already there. And there's just no problem with him talking about that. And we have to have these, these clear categories. Well, the Father is on the throne, doing nothing but throning. And the Son is on the right hand. Can't be left. It's on the right. He's doing nothing but praying. And the Spirit is down here doing other stuff. That's not the way the Bible, especially this passage, presents the Trinity. How many gods do we have? One. Wouldn't you expect if it was God and three persons, three persons and one entity, that you would experience a little bit of overlap and congruency between their ministries? It's exactly what's happening here. Both the Father and the Son are involved in providing the permanent abiding presence of the Godhead, namely the Holy Spirit. As we've seen, the identity of the divine presence provided by God involves all three members of the Trinity. Now, we have to be careful. This passage has taught us who is the member of the Godhead who abides with us? And the natural inclination is to say, well, the Holy Spirit is the Father and Son are in heaven. But remember, back in verse 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I, Jesus, I will come to you. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, Jesus and the Father, will come and make our abode, our home with him. So, which, I don't even like saying these words, I sound like a modalist, which part of God is permanently abiding with you? And the answer is, yes. Do you have the, do you, I mean, do you pray God the Father? Do you think that that prayer has special power to transcend all of the universe and find out wherever God is at the edge of the universe? Out, or is God already here? Is God with us? And if Jesus said, I will never leave you for, nor forsake you, you'll always have my abiding presence. I will come. I won't leave you as orphans. Do we expect that we can talk to, experience, pray with to our Lord? Galatians and Acts both say the spirit of Jesus was with them. So, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one that we're going to isolate, especially with looking at Revelation in a minute, but just don't fall into this trifurcation where you have all the members of the Trinity doing something somewhere else independent of one another. God is God. And you can put it all together and say God is permanently abiding and presently with us, Emmanuel, God, what? With us. Which member of the Trinity? Yes, God is with us. When Isaiah said that, he didn't say, well, we're going to tell you, you know, part of the Trinity is with you. He said, God is with us, Emmanuel. But don't let the theological complexities of the abiding presence of God distract you from the benefits. He is, don't miss this, he is our helper. The Holy Spirit is here and aware and anxious and willing to help you. 
He wants to give comfort. He wants to give counsel. He wants to give guidance. He wants to give conviction. You say, what do you mean he wants to? Is he going to do that whether we're a part of that or not? Yes and no. You've got to be careful. Yes, he's sovereign. However, we can, as we'll see in a few minutes, grieve who? The Holy Spirit. Our sin can actually be an obstacle to what God wants to see accomplished in our lives. That's when we grieve the Spirit of God. We grieve the Spirit who is, what's his attribute? Holy. Are you down? Are you frustrated? Are you troubled? Do you have a trial? Do you have a burden? Let me encourage you. That's the exact context that Jesus said, I'm going to send my Spirit, and he will care for you. And then he says, he'll care for you in my name, and he'll care for you because God the Father actually sent him. You are, as a believer, never what? Alone, ever. I remember when I was in high school, and uh, this was when it just became popular. Remember that little Footprints in the Sand um, poem and, and everything? And I remember our Sunday school teacher reading that and thinking, that is the cheesiest thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, just when, in this poem, just when things got bad, there were two tracks in the sand, and when things got bad, you know, there was one track in the sand, and I said, God, why did you leave me, only to find out he carried me, and I just kind of went, oh, come on. You know what? Now that I'm older, it's not cheesy anymore. It is absolutely the truth. He cares, he sustains, he comforts, he convicts, he is here. You know me freak you out a little bit? The Holy Spirit is here in the room right now. now. Just marinate on that for a minute. The Spirit of God, the Creator, is here. Not only is He in the room, He is in some nature indwelling and permanently abiding with the believer. Where does that land us practically? I mean, what's the first knee-jerk response of our soul when we have a trouble? Pick up the phone, call, email, find someone. That's okay. That's what the body is for. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. But shouldn't the first knee-jerk of the soul and reflex be to pray to the one who permanently is given to give us comfort and help? He's the one who provides help. Secondly, a second attribute of the Holy Spirit's ministry, he's the one who possesses divine holiness. He is the one who possesses divine holiness. Look at the phrase, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. This is only the second time in John's gospel that the third person of the Trinity is referred to as the Holy Spirit. First time was back in John 1.33 when he baptized Jesus. says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you one day in the Holy Spirit. And the last will be in chapter 20, verse 22. In fact, he's only referred to as the Holy Spirit three times in the book of John. But he is the Spirit of God, and because he's God, he is holy. We would expect that he would have the divine attributes, right? And he does. Theologians would probably agree that the crown jewel of all the attributes of God is his holiness. And holiness is, a, is the strangest of all the attributes of God. If you, if you break them down, there are two lists of the attributes of God. They're called the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. 
The communicable are the things that he is that we can be like, that he gives us. The incommunicable are the things that he is that he can't give us. You say, what's, what's that mean? Well, God is omnipresent. Can he really give that to us? Omniscient. Can you really know everything? Um, divine wrath. Can we really judge the world? No, no. Those are the incommunicable attributes. But there are communicable attributes that he gives us, like graciousness, mercy, love, kindness, loving kindness. The strange part about holiness is holiness is both a communicable attribute and an incommunicable attribute. What does Leviticus 19.3 say? Be holy like I am holy, says the Lord. And yet in Exodus, Moses said, there is none holy like you. In chapter 17, verse 5, we find out that the Father is holy. Jesus is called the Holy One in Luke 4.34 and Mark 1.24. And in Revelation 4, the angels cry night and day, Holy, holy, holy is God, is the Lord God the Almighty. Any discussion of the holiness of God should bring us back to the wonderful and frightening voice of Leviticus 19.2, that thundering and wooing admonition, be holy because I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. We find out, and we'll, can I just confess to you, preaching on the Holy Spirit in this section is very hard because I know there's three more sections on the Holy Spirit and I keep wanting to say things about what's coming. It's really hard not to reach ahead, but let me reach ahead for a minute. In John 16, 8, we find out he's also the convictor of sin. Why? Because he is holy. How could he possibly not be the convictor of sin if he's not holy? Now, here's the question. If the Holy Spirit is holy, if he possesses the divine holiness, if he permanently resides with us, if he's always with us, will never leave or forsake us, do we experience the conviction of the, what kind of spirit? Holy Spirit when we sin. The most dangerous person I can imagine is the person who claims to be Christ but cannot point to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in their life when they sin. One of the, one of the chief ways that I know my, I'm, I'm assured in my, in my salvation, I can't get away with anything. I mean, I do something, I say something, and it, I, it's just like the weight of God catches up with me sits on my chest and says, really? Really? And if, and if that doesn't happen, God uses other holy people in my life to make sure that happens. He's a spirit who's holy. That's why he's grieved when we sin. That's why the Holy Spirit who abides with us, this is almost indescribable. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, when you join yourself to a harlot or join yourself in adultery, when you do that, you actually bring the presence of the abiding Holy Spirit into that sinful situation. And his point is, may it never be that we would do that. But the Spirit who is holy is also gracious and is also forgiving, is also aware of our weaknesses 
It is also a part of the Trinity of whom the Son is a part who grants and gives forgiveness to people just like you and me. He possesses divine holiness. And that should have a ministry in our life. Thirdly, he's the one who teaches divine truth. And this is where it gets really interesting. He's the one who teaches divine truth. The text says, he will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit's already been introduced to us as the spirit of truth in verse 17. Here, however, the fullness of this function is spelled out. Here we discover that he teaches all things. Later, we're going to learn that he guides into all truth. In chapter 16, verse 13, he guides into all truth. He speaks what he hears from God. He discloses Christ and what's Christ to us. And I have great temptation to preach John 16, 13 now, but let's wait till we get there. Put all that together, though, and we can discern that the primary function of the Holy Spirit is to teach. Now, this is nothing new. Listen to what he does in the in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 9.20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Here, the thought of the Spirit's teaching ministry is tied to the revelation of Jesus and, and to his word. Now, now, this begins to make sense when we ask, what does Jesus mean by, I will teach you, or, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, rather, will teach you all things? Think about that. I mean, we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration of Scripture, Right? Yes, good. If that's the case, and the text says, he will teach you all things, what does that really mean? Did Jesus really mean all things? And here's the thing. No, he didn't. You say, well, that's undermining what God says. No, no. Jesus used the language just like you and I would. He didn't mean all things. He meant all things in the context of what he's saying. For example, the Holy Spirit was not going to teach the disciples cellular biology. Do we have any record of that? Or, or quantum physics. Do we have a record of the Holy Spirit teaching the disciples to speak Russian? Or how about the mating habits of the duck-billed platypus? I mean, we didn't get any of that. He didn't intend to teach them everything that could be known, but all things they needed to know about what was going to happen, the details of his suffering, and the things he had instructed them, as we'll see in just a minute. Again, he's taking care of them. Jesus is basically saying something like this. Men, these are the things I can tell you now. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come and tell you what you need to know later when you need to know it. Now, you have to say, why didn't Jesus just tell them everything then? He did. They didn't believe it, and they, they didn't get it. And even when they did get it, they argued with him. Look, I'm going to go to the cross. Peter says, actually, come on, Jesus. This is going to the cross thing. Not a good idea. Now, please note that we, too, have an anointing from the Spirit of God that teaches us all things, in quotation marks, that we need to know about Christ and living in him. For example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. 1 John 2.27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointed teach, anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true and it's not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. The abiding, the teaching, the presence of God, the spirit of God, all connected to the teaching of truth 
to our minds and hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the believer's abiding, resident teacher and controller and steward of truth. Now, in order to grasp this, turn over to 2 Peter for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. We've referenced this a few times in our study. We're going to drill down a little deeper right now. How does the Holy Spirit minister truth to us? How in the world can we get what we need to know about living the Christian life? Is it intuition? Is it instinct? Is it a good idea? Is it a seminar? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, first chapter, and verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Highlight it, underline it. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Just park there for a minute. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the understanding, the knowledge of God and Christ. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us, what's the next word? Everything, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Stop, stop right there. God has given us everything we need to live life and to be godly. That's comprehensive. How? How do we get that? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, this knowledge is found only in one place, and that's in the Bible. God's word, God's revealed written word, and the spirit of God was the agent of revelation behind this writing. Now, go down to the end of the chapter. This is amazing to me. He talks about the value of the Spirit's work in revealing the Word of God to us and what we hold in this book. Let's pick it up in verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what he's saying there is, I didn't make this up. I mean, we didn't sit in a room with the apostles and say, let's, let's devise a scheme. In fact, if any man ever invented a religion, would they really invent a religion where the God of the universe was so holy he couldn't be approached by every man or any man who is sinful? And so in order to accomplish that approach, he would send his own son from heaven and kill him in order to take on the sins of those who have sinned against him and give them his righteousness. Who would invent that? Look at all of the Greco-Roman and Babylonian and Egyptian mythologies, and nothing sounds even remotely like the gospel. We didn't make this up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this is weird. Eyewitnesses of his greatness, his glory, his majesty. When did Peter see the majesty of God? Now, you're tempted to say, well, after the resurrection, but that's not what he's talking about. For when he received glory and honor and glory from God... The Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. Here it is. When we were with him on the mountain. Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up. Here's uh, Elijah and Moses. They show up. He peels back his flesh, shows them his glory. Peter, in, in a brilliant Scheme says, let's make three tents and just live here forever. This is the kingdom. Peter says, I saw. I saw his glory. Now, wrap your minds around this. Peter saw the unseeable. He experienced the inexplicable. He saw 
the majestic glory of the second person of the Trinity. Now, if I had seen that, I would say there is no topper to that. That's the top shelf. There, there, there's no other shelf that you put anything else above that, right? Look at what he says in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Whoa, time out. We have the word of God which Peter says is more sure than the experience I had of seeing the majesty of Christ. To which you would do well to pay attention. Is that understated or what? As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, now we're getting to the crux of it, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now that's not talking about you and me reading and we can interpret it ourselves. He's talking about the prophecy of Scripture, the ones who actually prophesied, the ones who wrote the Scripture and spoke what's canonized in the Scripture. That's not their own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. There is a major, major theological point. No prophecy, you can put in parentheses in your mind, of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. So how did it happen? If we didn't make this up, Peter said we didn't make it up, where did this stuff come from? But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Does it make sense to you now that the, when Paul's describing the word of God in the believer's armor, what does he call it? It's the sword of the Spirit. But there's more. He's the one who teaches divine truth. Lastly, number four, he's the one who evokes divine illumination. And this is where it gets really, really encouraging. He's the one who evokes divine illumination. Look at the last part of verse 16. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This teaching was going to be qualified by memory. That is, the memory of what Jesus had taught them in his earthly ministry. He's going to teach you what I've taught you. He's going to cause you to remember that. It's impossible to overstate the importance of this promise in relation to our understanding of the Bible and bibliology, the doctrine of revelation. The Spirit will work in the disciples' minds as a prompter, as a reminder. Now, this is obviously a reference to, primarily it's a reference to the the memory of the events the apostles would need to write the Gospels. Ever wonder about what role the Spirit has in writing the Bible? I mean, this is, this, is a, this is fun stuff, and it's not very deep. It's just stopping long enough to think about it. How did, how did the Spirit use the minds of men to write the Word of God? Have you ever asked yourself this? How did Moses know about the conversation between Adam and and Eve, and God. How did he know that? Moses wrote Genesis. How did Moses know that interaction between Cain and Abel, especially since no one could interview Cain afterwards? No one could interview Abel afterwards. Even their descendants died in the flood. 
And Abel's dad couldn't even give his side of the story. How did he know all of those intricate, literally, revelation-dependent words about the Abrahamic covenant? That's a lot of detail. Have you ever read that? I mean, how in the world could Moses have gotten all that detail? And if we believe, as we do, that every word was exactly right, where did he get that information? Well, it's not too hard to figure out if you'll just read the book of Exodus. Because at least twice, and some theologians think three times, he went up on the mountain and was with God for 40 days and 40 nights, taking divine notation. He went up there for four days. I mean, it wasn't just saying, hey, you like the burning bush? Watch what I can do with this rock. He wasn't just up there entertaining himself. He was getting Genesis. He was getting what he should say about the Exodus and all the law about Leviticus. He was getting that divine revelation. God, no doubt, simply told Moses on the mountain what he should write down about Genesis. But what an incredible accuracy. What about, rather, the incredible accuracy of the details of Jesus' life? I mean, were they, were they really, were the disciples walking around with, with a notebook and saying, got to get that, got to get that, make sure you get that, make sure you say this? No. These men were promised a divine gifting of memory by the aid of the Holy Spirit to make sure that they got Jesus and the gospel right. That's what this promise is. Also, please note that the revelation that Jesus was promising from the Spirit was in reference to him and his words, not where to find a parking space or how to speak in tongues. He says, the Spirit's going to teach you about me. And over and over in chapter 16, we're going to see the Spirit, his primary motivation is to point to the second person of the Trinity, to point to Christ, to point to the gospel. The Holy Spirit's ministry is primarily to point to Jesus, John 16, 14. He says he will glorify him. When you hear people say that the Spirit is telling them something, uh, something, and the Spirit's prompting me something, the quick test is, what is it about Jesus that's already recorded in the Scripture that the Spirit's telling you, and then I'll believe that it's true? So as I said, this has to do primarily with the memory of these men and that what they would need to give an adequate explanation and defense of the gospel as well as the knowledge they would need to write much of the New Testament. However, we need to ask if this ministry of the Spirit of God was only for those men, or if it has some application to us today. Does does the Spirit of God work in our memory? Does the Spirit of God work in our hearts? And i got to confess, I read books on both sides, commentators on both sides this week. Some said this is only for the disciples. Some said this is absolutely for us. How do we decide? Well, let's, let's, let's do some little investigation. It's interesting that this promise is made to 11 men, the 11 disciples left in the room, right? But only four of those 11 men would end up writing parts of the New Testament. Furthermore, this is interesting, it's important to note that neither Luke nor Mark were one of the 12. I remember saying that at a high school camp and had a senior high schooler come up and he, he thought I'd, I was a liberal and I lost my mind to say that you know, Luke and Mark weren't a part of the 12 and I had to say, have you read the list 12? <laughs> they, they weren't. They weren't disciples. They, they, they came later. Uh, Mark is largely 
uh, understood as the gospel of Peter, since Mark followed Peter around and, and was taught over and over the things of Peter, and I'm sure he was taking note. And, and uh, Luke uh, actually did a, an investigation and collection and wrote it for Theophilus. They had divine illumination, but were not in the room and did not receive this promise. However, you're saying, but they were still writing scripture, and you're right. It's important to note, though, that the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination and interpretation was a part, is a part of who he is. It didn't just work for a couple of decades while they wrote the Bible. J.C. Ryle wrote this. J.C. Ryle is just money sometimes. He just cuts through the, the, the fog. He says, to confine this promise to the 11 apostles, as some do, seems a narrow and unsatisfactory mode of interpreting Scripture. It appears to reach far beyond the day of Pentecost and the gift of writing inspired books of God's holy word. It is safer, wiser, and more consistent with the whole tone of our Lord's last discourse to regard the promise as the common property of all believers in every age of the world. Our Lord knows the ignorance and the forgetfulness of our nature and spiritual things. He graciously declares that when he leaves the world, his people shall have a teacher and a remembrancer. I love that word, remembrancer. The bottom line is if we have the Holy Spirit and he is the teacher of all truth and he guards all truth, he's the steward of all truth and he inspired the truth and if we have the truth, who is the one who's going to give us the understanding and interpretation of the truth? It's the Spirit of God who continues to work in and through our minds. What does that look like? Well, it's the gift of illuminating Scripture to our hearts and minds. I mean, I don't know how, how much clearer you can get than, than uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where uh, Paul very clearly says, a natural man does not accept the things of God. Actually, it says the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually appraised. So even there, Paul says, the Spirit of God works in the mind of a saved person to give the light of the understanding of God revealed in, in the pages of Scripture he works to turn on that switch, which makes us believe it. He still illumines, which means to light up. He lets us to see what God says and what he means. Also, the gift of proper interpretation to our understanding and application. Listen, the Bible, let me say it slowly, is maybe the most important thing we can, we can grasp when we look at the Spirit of God like this. The Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. That's where we're looking for the author's intent, the authorial intent. What did Paul mean when he wrote to the Colossians? What did, what did John mean when he was writing to, to the, uh, the, the folks who would get abundant life from reading his gospel? What did Matthew mean when he was writing to a Jew, Jewish audience? And you say, well, how could we possibly know? Well, two things. First of all, the Spirit of God illumines our minds and hearts. And secondly, most of them tell us what they mean. It, it, we have this idea the Bible's really hard to understand. There are a few, few parts that are. I, I mean, the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, that's a hard one to understand. But um, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Do you need a PhD for that one? Jesus walked on water. Do you believe it? 
So what's the takeaway for us? Well, the gift of remembering biblical truth is given by the Spirit so that we can do what Paul calls be equipped for every good work in Christ. We should continually grasp that the Spirit is God, continually seek his assistance in Bible reading and interpretation and application. Can I beg you, can I ask you, when you get up tomorrow and read your Bible, can you start with just just this simple address to God? Holy Spirit, illumine my mind to understand your truth. We can also trust that this is a reliable source of God's truth. If the Spirit is holy and he does not sin, and if he inspired this book to believe anything other than it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, is a slap in the face of the Spirit of God. We're calling him a liar. We're calling him incapable of preserving his word. And remember that the Spirit who is ever with us is omniscient, omnipresent, and holy. The gravity of the Spirit's holiness should rest heavy on our consciences and on our choices. As I said a minute ago, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We'll look more at that sealing and that, that function of saving the soul and igniting the spiritual understanding and opening up our eyes and ears to see the gospel when we get into his ministry more specifically in chapter 16. Don't grieve the Spirit because he's here and he's going to go with you when you leave the building if you know his son. Father, I'm amazed by so much of your son in this passage who cared for us by ensuring that we would understand the gift of the Spirit. I'm overwhelmed by your care for us, Father, by sending your son and ensuring by your sending and in Jesus' name that the Spirit would be given. And I'm so thankful, Holy Spirit, that you guide, convict, lead into truth. You're ever with us. Oh, Father, please give our church an awareness of the magnitude and the overwhelming reality that God is with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission of Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionrobbiblechurch.com.